For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's all now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Welcome to another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, for SB Live Sports. Experts across the landscape of high school, college, and professional sports are our guests. This guy is definitely an expert. If you talk to one of his co-hosts on his own podcast, he might say he's an expert in all the wrong things, but I will give him credit. He's been a tremendous resource as I've gotten to know him over the last year or so. Uh, Host of a couple podcasts on the Field of 68 Media Network, Rob Doster. Rob, thanks for joining. How is life wherever you may be today? Uh, life is good, man. Life is great. We uh, finally had the heat wave break here, so it's uh, I can actually go outside and not start sweating immediately, which is nice. You know, I'm a sweaty guy, so uh, having good weather is always a good thing. Well, the one nice thing with the fact that the heat waves are beginning to be done with is that means college basketball is right around the corner. I'm sure we'll have plenty of college basketball conversation to to wrap up our conversation, but. I'm always curious for people who get into the industry and into the business, what was there in, how did they get to do what they do? Um, Because there's lots of different paths. How did you get into the world of college basketball and analyst work? So when I was in college, I played basketball at a a pretty low level. I played at um, a division three school called Vassar uh, in upstate New York. And when I graduated, Um, I knew I wanted to kind of stay in the basketball world. I didn't really want to get into coaching uh, because I didn't, I I don't know, just, I I don't think that coaching is necessarily for me, especially at the college. I would be a terrible recruiter, Dan. Like I, like I'm not capable of like kind of, you know, kissing up to people and trying to make it, I would, I would probably be a little bit too, uh, too open in my my evaluations of some of these kids. So I I knew I wasn't going to be a great um, recruiter, but I wanted to stay in basketball somehow. So I ended up getting a desk job at this lobbyist firm on K street in Washington, DC. And it was the worst experience of my life professionally. Like I just, I sat at a desk for eight hours a day and answered phones. When the, uh, when, when the guys that were my bosses needed something like a thousand pieces of paper put into order, uh, to put out like booklets, I was the one that had to go into the conference table and put all of these pieces of paper into order. It, It was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. So what I did while I was there was I just started a blog. This was back in the blog days in like 2008. Uh, it was called Ballin' is a Habit. And it got to the point where I looked forward to going to work 
because I was sitting at the desk and I was just writing about college basketball on a blog. Um, and I was 22, 23 years old at the time. And I was like, why am I, why am I sitting here pretending like I want to do something professionally when all I want to do is sit at this desk and write about college basketball. So I quit that job. I went and got a job bartending and I was just like, I'm going to give this three years and try to do my best to see if I can make this be something that works. And if it doesn't, then I'll just go back to sitting at a desk and having a miserable, uh, miserable, boring nine to five life again. So, uh, it didn't take three years. It took about six years, but eventually I was hired by NBC um, full time to start working for them. And it kind of went from there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was how I got involved. And I just wanted to grew up a huge college basketball fan. Um, I'm from Connecticut, big UConn guy. Uh, and I got a job at the desk and, and hated it. So I just started, uh, started a blog that's that. And, and now we're here 13 years that, later. That speaks to a lot of people, uh, not necessarily wanting a desk job, um, trying to find a way to find their passion and, and turn that into a job. You've done that. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do that as well. But I didn't go down the coaching path partly because I didn't want to move every two, three years with my family. Uh, the other reason why is exactly what you're talking about. I think I'd be great at the eval, but I wouldn't be great at the recruiting aspect of playing that game. Um, give me the eval on Rob Doster's game uh, back at Vassar College. So uh, I didn't play any defense at all. Horrible defensively. Couldn't really dribble the ball all that well. Wasn't really all that athletic. But when I tell you that uh, I was automatic out to about 30 feet, um, I was automatic out to about 30 feet. In my mind, I was the best shooter that I ever saw. That's probably not true. Uh, you can look at my numbers from Vassar. I think I shot like 33% on my career from three. Um, but in my mind, I was the best shooter that you ever saw. So I'm trying to think of a good comparison um, for who it would have been. Do you remember uh, remember Marshall Henderson from Ole Miss? Oh, yeah. Imagine Marshall Never Henderson. Never saw a shot he didn't like. Yeah. So imagine him, but not good at anything on a basketball court. And that's kind of what I was. <laughs> well, the, the not being great at defense is, uh, you know, I, I gave it an effort, but I will agree to the fact that I was not a good defender, but I gave it an effort. Did you at least give it an effort? That's a question. I was really good at the things that made it look like I was trying, right? Like every once in a while you dive on the floor, right? Or every once in a while you try to take a charge where you just fall over and scream to make it look. It's what is it? The the fake effort, the fake hustle. I was really good at those things. False hustle, yep. Yeah. I, I wasn't very good at the actual uh the stuff that that you had to do to be good defensively. So when we talk about evaluations and there there's lots of different ways to go about evaluating prospects, high school to college, uh, college to the NBA and whatnot. But there, there are certain guys that you, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You walk in the gym like, hmm, he's pretty good. I want to recruit him. But I think it's the, the, the beauty or, or the, the amazing part of some people's evaluations is they can look past the, the absolute can't miss guys and find the diamonds in the rough. When you're kind of trying to sort out those guys, what are the characteristics and traits that you look for in a player? So the, the things that really stand out to me are like, what's his reaction when he's not playing well, right? Like everybody, when they're having a great game, looks like the best player in the world. When someone is not playing well, does he still have an impact on a game? Is he still 
uh, on the bench up and cheering his teammates on? Is he still the guy that is high-fiving everybody after someone gets a defensive stop? Can he do things other than just score or other than just dunk or other than just shoot? Like, are you uh, making the right rotations defensively? Are you able to hustle back on defense after someone else misses a shot? Are you sulking because you haven't been playing well? That kind of a thing. I think, to me, those are the things that really stand out. Um, Because at the end of the day, like, look, there's a certain level of player that is going to be great regardless of what kind of happens for him. Like Chet Holmgren. Everybody knows how great Chet Holmgren is going to end up being. My question is, for the guys that aren't at that like elite, elite level, you got to be able to kind of carve out a role to have some success. If you want to be able to hang around in the NBA and you're Brandon Clark, you got to be really good. You got to be switchable defensively. You got to be able to put in the work on the defensive end of the floor. You got to be able to block some shots. You got to be able to eventually knock down a three. And you basically have to be that cog in the machine that makes everything else work well around you, if that makes sense. So um, to me, it's kind of finding those guys that are going to play hard, that are going to be good teammates, that are going to be good team defenders, that are going to do all the little things on a basketball court that you need to do to win beyond just having someone that can score. So um, those are those are the kind of things that I like to see, right? Like if I, I just – I feel like there's a certain point where the talent isn't going to outweigh not being a great teammate. So it's kind of finding those guys that have that combination of being really good in terms of from the basketball stuff, but being great within a locker room. I think that characterizes the two teams that were in the national title game last year in in Mm -hmm. Gonzaga and Baylor. You know, yes, they had some very good players. They had some great players. Then they had some role players, but they all bought in. They all did the things that, um, you know, maybe to the average fan, they don't see, but to the trained eye, to someone who really knows the game, they did all the little things that made, things click how difficult was it for you to follow and and cover college basketball last year being that there was very limited limited access to be able to go to games see them in person um what was a typical couple day stretch for you covering college basketball a season ago i mean it was just sitting on my couch watching games which is um you know it's not necessarily that bad of a thing for me in terms of being able to uh, you know, watch the stuff that I want to watch and be able to catch up on the stuff that I need to catch up on on, on like something like Synergy, right? Because there was so much more, so much less travel involved. Like normally I'm driving up to the games in New York City in November and December, or I'm trying to find a way to get down to Villanova to see a game or maybe get down to Maryland to see a game or um, get around. Like when when you're traveling to go to games, you spend more time doing that than you would sitting down and actually watching the games that you need to be watching. So I felt like I watched more basketball than I normally would uh, on a screen. Now, I don't think that you get the same feel for it when you are as, as you would, if you're watching it from press row, when you're able to get into the locker room afterwards and kind of talk to some of the coaches and talk to some of the players. Like to me, that's where you get the best insight on these teams is to be able to like my favorite thing to do after a game is to go in the locker room, find the assistant coaches on the teams that I know, and just be like, hey, so what's going on with this team? Why is this happening? What did you see on this team? What have you seen on tape for this team that you've played? Because um, I think that's where you get the best information. But in terms of actually being able to have a feel for the teams that we're playing, I mean, I watched, I probably watched more Baylor and Gonzaga basketball last year than I have in any season before, just because, I mean, what else do I have to do? I don't have anything else to do. So I, I watched, I mean, it was great to be able to watch it, but um, it felt like I was the most disconnected from anybody uh for any season in the past does that make sense no 100 disconnected is a great word because 
you guys know I, I, I call games for a number of different media networks. Uh, for CBS, I call games from my house. And so we'd have a Zoom meeting with the coaches the, the morning of or the day before to get some of the intel that you're talking about right there. But you don't see shoot around in your, by, with your own eyes seeing the interaction between coach and player and which players really ticking off a coach and not paying any bit of attention or, you know, at Gonzaga games uh, last year, it was in person, but I couldn't go to, I couldn't go to practices and shoot arounds and kind of, you know, see the development of the team throughout the course of the year. You know what the other part of that is when, when you're in the shoot around, you kind of get a feel for what that team is working on and what their game plan is going to end up being right. You get to see, uh, Mark Few working on, okay, we got to stop this set and we got to focus on getting this shot and this play. And we got to, this is where our advantage is going to be because you see them working on things to try to get, uh, you know, drew Timmy a certain touch on a certain action. So you have a feel for what to expect going into that game. And I think it enhances what you can do as a broadcaster, right? It, it, it kind of gives you a little bit in, of insight that a typical fan is not going to get, but you're not getting that this year, or, or at least last year you weren't getting that. So I think it kind of, um, I don't know. I, it, it put you guys in a very difficult position because I'm sure like it's not what you had ever done before. You were just scouting everything based off of TV more yeah. or less, which is, I mean, like I said, it's, it's hard to do that effectively because you're not getting the same kind of insight from the people that you normally would get that are kind of boots on the ground on these teams. And that's where, you know, the experience factor and the, the ability to, to text or call a coach for, for some of that insight was helpful a season ago. You know, I'm, 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 cautiously optimistic all games will be in person this year but with with everything happening i think there's going to be a mixture of both calling games at home as well as in person so we'll see what happens with that but that's just kind of where i see things going um give me your take on one of the hot button issues in college sports over the last couple months and that's the name image likeness Uh, i personally uh i like it uh i think it's only the the one percent are going to get the true advantages of it because um, it, there's not as much money out there as some people think there is. But then you see things like BYU and the, all their walk-ons getting their scholarships or their academics paid for. What's your take on L- NLI and how it's going to impact college basketball? I think that it is going to end up being a very good thing for the sport in the long run. One, because I think it's going to be able to keep more talent in the ranks. Right. Like, I don't think that we would have seen a guy like Jalen Duran consider the college route if that wasn't an option. Right. Like people were talking about he could have gotten uh, a seven figure deal if he went to Australia. He would have gotten a seven figure deal if he went to the G League Ignite program. And he's going to Memphis. Um, I think that Amani Bates is seriously considering going to college because of that. I think that we see guys like a Drew Timmy come back to school, even though they had a chance to go pro and probably end up on a two-way contract somewhere because of what they're able to to potentially make off of their NIL when they come back to school. I think that someone like a Johnny Juzang is coming back to school for those same reasons. Hunter Dickinson at Michigan uh, has been vocal about the fact that he's been able to come back to school because of the the potential um, profits that he can make off his NILs. So I think that one, it's going to, it creates, um, a financial, a financial reason for you to come to college. Uh, How do I phrase this right way? It it makes it so your decision to go to college is not a financial one, right? Like there's a lot of kids that are going to say like, why would I go to school when I can make $500,000 to go play in the G league, or I can make a million dollars plus a shoe sponsorship deal to go play overseas. Um, 
if you're able to kind of get some of that money when you go to college, the branding opportunities, the fact that you're on national television every single night, the fact that you fly private everywhere, the fact that you are a god on a college campus, which is a pretty cool thing if you're you know a college athlete, um, you get you get all of those benefits plus you get the money, right? So I think that it takes away the financial reasoning to not go to college, and if all things are equal money wise, the college option is just so much better than going anywhere else. Um, you know, I, I, look. Playing overseas in a country where your the time zones are completely the opposite, where you maybe you don't speak the language, like that's a that's a lot more difficult than people realize. Um, going to the G League Ignite, like that is when you're playing against former All Americans and grown men that are scrapping for their to try to get that one last NBA contract. Like everybody in the G League was coming after Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga and Dacian Nix and Isaiah Todd last year, and um it's just it's not an easy thing to do playing in college is awesome i mean you can attest to this dan you you, you yeah. lived at two different schools you know playing in college is a great experience and if you're able to make that experience as financially viable as going to some of these other programs then it, i think you're going to get a lot of those kids i also think you're going to get a lot of the kind of marginal guys coming back i mean if your option is okay, I have a chance to maybe get a two-way contract, which pays, what, like 75 to 100K, depending on that kind of as a baseline, or maybe go overseas and maybe make six figures over there versus coming back to school, get a year closer to my degree, maybe get like 60 to 75K for NIL stuff, depending on how much you do. Um, it, it just, I think that it creates a lot of advantages to keep talent in college basketball because finances are no longer a reason to not go especially like this is when the kids are the most profitable right yeah. like there's a lot of players where they're never going to be bigger stars than when than, than when they're in college and allowing them to kind of make some money off of that i just it's it, to me it just seems like the right thing to do and yes it's not it, it's going to mean like some kids make five figures some kids are going to get like free meals that i like i saw i saw an ad that went viral for South Dakota state had their star football and basketball players do an advertisement for the local Applebee's where they just, it, they made a joke out of like selling out and one of they dressed up into these costumes and it was really funny and they're not going to make a ton of money off of that. But if it means you get free meals every time you go to Applebee's and maybe you get to drive in like a, a brand new car from a dealership for like that year that you're in college, like for a lot of these kids, like that's a good deal, you know? So you know, I don't I just don't really see any downside to it. Yeah, no, I, I I think you put a lot of those examples in a great way that maybe not everybody has thought about because, yeah, they're, you know, the, the free meal kind of angle for a college kid. That's a big deal. Yes, yes, it <laughs> you're is. not having to go to the cafeteria. You're not having to go, you know, to McDonald's or whatnot. That is a huge deal. So how about best player you've seen in college basketball since you've been covering it closely? Oh man, I, I think it was probably Zion. I, I just, he's, he was so special, man. Like the, the things that he's able to do, you just don't see people do. Um, and I still think that he's going to end up being a superstar in the NBA. I don't know how many guys can be point centers the way that he can. Um, you know, I, I just, I think he probably still needs a year or two in the kind of the right pieces around him, but he, he's just so good. And he's so much fun to watch. And he seems like such a nice kid. Like he just, I, I love the the Zion era. Um, if I mean, if you can even call those six months an era, but um, it was it was yeah, it was it was so much fun to watch when he was when he was in school. In terms of a guy that was there uh, for four years, um, I mean, I don't know. That's tough. 
I, I got to come back on that one. I mean, the the money Zion would have made with NIL would have been otherworldly. It would have been <laughs> yes. bonkers. And who knows? Maybe he did make some that we don't know about. And we won't ever find out about. I mean, you know. I mean, I'm right? sure. I'm sure he did. It, like, yeah, he. I'm, I'm sure he did. How about the college football is really the big driver of a lot of this, both the NIL and conference realignment. You know, there's talks of shifting Texas and Oklahoma uh, to the SEC. Then what happens with the Big 12? When you look at it just strictly from a basketball perspective, what would you like to see, you know, big picture with the biggest five or six conferences in the country and then your outliers like a Gonzaga? Uh, I mean, I would like to see football stop being the driver in this. I would like to see the the money that these schools can make stop being the driver in decisions that are made for um, a sport that, you know, is everything about college sports is kind of built off of the rivalries and built off of the traditions and built off of, all right, this is Texas week where Texas is going to play Baylor, or um, this is when Gonzaga is going to change, get to go in and play at St. Mary's and they play at UCF. It's it just so much of what makes this sport great and what makes college football great. And what makes um, it so appealing to fans is the stuff that, that they've done for a hundred years, right? There are, there are grandkids that did certain things when they were going to Texas football games that they want to pass down to their, to their kids. And they're going to pass down to their grandkids because they always sit in these same seats and they always go to the same spot for tailgates whenever they play these teams, um, losing those rivalries, especially on the basketball side, right? Like the fact that UConn and Syracuse are not in the same conference and Georgetown and Syracuse are not in the same conference is just, it's, it's not good for college athletics. The fact that uh, Kansas and Missouri are not playing each other um, two or three times uh, uh, the, uh, every season, we're not getting home and homes. We're not potentially getting them big 12 tournaments. Like that's just, it's not good for college sports. The fact that we're now in a situation where like you don't get teams from the sec East and the sec West playing all the time. It's just, it, it's gotten to be too much. And, and it sucks that, that, TV money and ESPN, and it's, it's the thing that's driving all of this. But I think what's eventually going to end up happening is that uh, we're going to have like 60-something football teams breaking away. I think that's probably the end game, right? Like all of these major football programs are going to condense, and you're going to get like 50 or 60 of them that create their own conferences, um, and they're going to get bought up by ESPN, and they're going to get broken into like eight or nine different divisions in this one major conference, and – uh, it's going to be all because ESPN wants to be able to get the most expensive or most valuable products on TV for football every Saturday. Now, what will be interesting is if so ESPN, think about this, Dan. ESPN owns all the college football rights, right? I don't know how much Fox has. I don't know how much NBC has, but Fox, NBC and CBS have all of the NFL rights. So what happens if they convince the NFL to play games on Saturdays? to undercut all of those college football, all those valuable college football time slots. You know, at the end of the day, what if that ends up happening? What happens yeah. to college football then? It's just the idea that it's TV money and TV revenue and TV time slots that's driving all of this. It just, it's so, it's so frustrating that, that that's where we are, but that is where we are. So it, it's, I don't know. It, it I, I hate thinking about it. I hate thinking about realignment. I hate, I just hate that this is always a conversation because it just, it blows up everything good about the, about college sports. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you. The, the money aspect has driven college athlete 
athletics over the last 10, 12 years. First, it did it quietly when the average fan and even the media didn't cover it or understand it to a certain extent what was going to happen. But you saw it with gradually with uh, practice facilities being built, weight rooms being enhanced. You saw it with the way the teams traveled. And then you saw it, you know, with the different things that you're talking about now with there's even more money. So the realignment, you want to shuffle the deck so that you get a bigger piece of that pie. Where I don't disagree with it, it can be frustrating for, for a loyal fan if they can find a way to scratch the itch and get enough money but keep the rivalry games to a certain extent would be great to see. And I guess if someone were able to figure that one out, you could be the mass commissioner of all of college sports. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but that, I mean, look, that's just another reason why I'm, I'm happy that the NIL stuff is in place because everything about college sports is about who can make the most money. Uh, and the only people that aren't actually able to kind of tap into that money were the college athletes. And yes, I know they're able to get an education and they're getting a scholarship and all of that stuff has value. But if we're talking about a $50,000 a year scholarship versus Texas leaving a place where they're getting $139 million a year or whatever it is to go make more money, it's just everything about college sports is money. Just let the college athletes make a little bit of money themselves off of it. It's really not going to make that much of a difference. Well, we're heading up the final stretches of summer. Uh, college student athletes on the basketball side are going to be, you know, showing back up to campus in the next week or two. What's your outlook for college basketball this season? Give me your team that you predict will be cutting down the nets. Give me your surprise team and give me your player of the year. So overall with college basketball, I think that I am the most excited about this season than I've been in a long time because, I mean, just look at how much talent ended up coming back to school. Drew Timmy's coming back to Gonzaga. How many people thought that was going to happen? Uh, Kofi Coburn is coming back to Illinois. Uh, we have Remy Martin coming back to uh, to Kansas. I think the fact that we had so many players come back to school combined with the fact that, like, the immediately eligible transfers means that all those guys that would normally be sitting out a year are now playing immediately. It's just I feel like – there was more talent in college basketball this year than there has been in any recent season. I feel like there's more competitiveness at the top. Like I could probably make an argument for four or five teams being the number one team in the country right now. Gonzaga being one of them, UCLA being one of them. I think Kansas is probably in that mix. I think you can make an argument. Texas belongs in that mix. Um, I think my sleeper in the, for, for a national title would be Purdue. Um, I, I just, I mean, look, they have everybody coming back. They have a potential uh, All-American in Jaden Ivey. They have one of the best big guys in the country in Trevion Williams. And they have a coach in Matt Painter who just finds a way to make it work with whatever talent he has on the roster. Love Purdue this year. So um, I'm thrilled about what we're going to end up seeing in college basketball this season. In terms of my, uh, my sleeper, I think that um, Auburn is going to be a team that is a lot better than people are giving them credit for. They got a couple transfers coming in in their backcourt. I think that Alan Flanagan is going to be one of the breakout stars in terms of everybody realizes that he can be a kid uh, that is a potential, you know, lottery pick, top 20 pick. They got a freshman in Jabari Smith coming in that is really, really good. And their center, Walker Kessler, is a guy that was a former five-star that couldn't really get minutes at North Carolina and has now transferred to Auburn. So I think that they're absolutely loaded. In terms of my player of the year, this one's tough because um, I, I don't think that there's necessarily an easy answer. 
Um, I think that uh, two guys on Gonzaga makes sense to kind of slot into that role, whether it's Chet Holmgren or Drew Timmy. Uh, I think it might be a situation where they split picks again. I think that you can make an argument that Johnny Juzang belongs in that conversation. Um, I think that someone like an Hunter, Hunter Dickinson can end up being really, really good this year. I love the freshman that uh, that Duke got, Paolo Bancaro, um, who I believe is from Seattle. He's right? from Seattle. Unbelievable yeah. talent. Yeah, very yeah, good. He's, he's really, really good. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's tough. I don't know who's going to end up being the player of the year, but I will say this. Um, if we get into a situation where we have another showdown between Gonzaga and UCLA, who I think for my money are the two best teams in college basketball, if we can get them playing for a national title this year after the game that they had in the Final Four last year, I think that would be a great thing for the sport. And I'm all the way here for it. That would be. And I happened to see uh, Coach Cronin this summer when I was down coaching my son's uh, AAU team. And, and I talked to him for a minute and I just had to say, Coach, that was the greatest college basketball game I have ever seen. But I'm glad the Zags won. And he just looked at me and he, goes, and he, and he laughed and he said, I'm sure you feel that way. But yes, it was a good game. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great game, man. It was uh, like it was the 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 weight that came with it because uh, Gonzaga was chasing perfection and the talent that was on the floor and the ridiculous shot making that we saw from UCLA and the fact that it went to overtime and the fact that like so a lot of those those games where you have the memorable endings or the buzzer beaters they're not great games they yeah. just have wild finishes that was a great game like the the level of play on the court was was just on a completely different level um i don't know if it was because there were no fans in the stands and, and it made it a little bit uh less pressure packed because you weren't playing on, um, you know, in a, in a 90,000 seat football stadium, um, whatever it was, like that was just an unbelievable game that had an unbelievable finish. And it was played that level throughout the entire game. There was never any comebacks. I feel like it was a one possession game throughout the entire uh, 45 minutes. And of course it ended with one of the uh, most memorable. I, I saw a stat um, that was the third deepest buzzer beater in NCAA tournament history. Wow. And it was the deepest buzzer beater in uh, in Final Four history. So that definitely will go down, in my mind, right up there with 2016 um, uh, UC, uh, North Carolina and Villanova as the greatest game that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Rob, I appreciate the time. Um, definitely want to have you on again at some point. Um, and I look forward to uh, continuing to do some stuff on your Field of 68 network. That's making some big strides moving into football as well this year. So congratulations on that. Uh, thanks for joining. Yeah, make sure you uh, sign up and subscribe to the Bulldog broadcast as well. <laughs>
Granger for the ones who get it done.